0: I always say hockey is the one thing that I feel is the same uh, for me with legs and without. You know, you walk into a hockey rink, every hockey rink smells like a hockey rink. It's still 5 on 5, it's still the same sheet of ice, the goal is still 4 by 6, it's still the same rules, obviously it's a sled and for me as a goalie I'm not making kick save left and right but it's already like I flopped and I'm just catcher blocker, catcher blocker um, and it, I still can be competitive and in, in athletic. So. Hey, how you doing? This is U.S. Army Special Forces Captain Ben Harrow, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. This week we're interviewing uh, Ben Harrow. He's a West Point grad, played lacrosse there, also award number 37, like myself. Um, Was a Green Beret captain. He's a double amputee above the knee, and he currently is playing club hockey or sled hockey down in D.C., my old stomping grounds, too. And uh, he also plays for the Italian national team, and he's a goalie. So Ben, you wanted to start off by just talking about what sports you played growing up? Yeah, uh,
0: so I played a lot of sports growing up. Uh, For me, I grew up on Long Island. You know, in the fall, I played soccer and and hockey. And in the winter, I was playing basketball and hockey. And then in the spring, uh, you know, youth baseball. And it wasn't really until middle school that I got more serious in lacrosse, about uh, seventh, eighth grade. Um, And then I actually got... sent away to boarding school, not because I did anything horrible. Yeah, but I was going to ask about that. No, I didn't steal a car or anything like that. Uh, it was just an opportunity to uh, go to kind of a, an elite boarding school uh, down in Virginia, a place called Woodbury Forest School. And they had you know really good athletics and academics. And I, I knew even as a, a young kid in middle school, it was kind of a golden opportunity. Uh, so I took it, and that's where I got more serious into lacrosse. And obviously, there's no hockey rinks in Orange County, the middle of Virginia. So right. uh, that's where I got more serious into lacrosse.
1: All right, cool. Um, what injuries did you suffer from growing up as an athlete? I, I had a
0: couple of concussions just from, from hockey. I got hit hard one time. Um, I know I remember my senior year during our big soccer game versus our rival high school. Uh, I played goalie also in soccer. Uh, it was a free kick right outside of the 18, and I ran back to punch it over the crossbar and just tipped it over the bar at the last second, and then I wrapped my head on the, the side post, and it just I just remember he, like hearing and feeling this crack and just kind of seeing the, the lights go out and uh, waking up in the back of the net. With uh, one of the other team's uh, strikers was, was shaking me to, to kind of wake me up. Oh wow! And uh, definitely knocked me out for a couple seconds. And uh, they, they carried me off. They had to call an ambulance to put me on a stretcher and get me out of there. Jeez. But it was just a you know real bad concussion. Um, you know, ironically, I never broke a bone or had a, a major injury besides pulling a muscle in college before I stepped on a bomb, and then I go through like 40 surgeries and, and everything else. So, Jeez, yeah, we're, we're gonna get into that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's like an insane
1: story. Oh, because I forgot to act or add into the intro that you're a world record holder for uh bone lengthening, yeah, two
0: two world uh, two medical world records. Yeah, yeah,
1: so I'm, I'm excited to hear more about that. Um, so what sparked your interest in going to the service academies?
0: So as a high school kid, you know, I, I knew I wanted to play Division I lacrosse. I wanted to play for a competitive program. Uh, also, I knew I kind of want to be part of something just bigger than myself. I, I didn't realize what it was, and it definitely was being in the military and, and that self-service and, and serving my country. Uh, it was just it, it was a, a niche that I kind of felt uh, you know, fit me personally. Um, And also, you know, filling out college applications as a young kid, it says, what do you want to pick as a major? All I wanted to do was play lacrosse and win a national championship and, you know, get a, a degree. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up as a junior in, in high school. So I also realized that serving a couple years in the military is a five-year commitment. No matter where you go, which, whichever academy, it would at least give me some good life experience and job experience. And I was always told the Service Academy Network is is really big and very helpful, which it is. Um, so that kind of drove my, my choice to go to one of the military academies. And, and it came down to either – navy or or west point and at the end of the day uh west point w- recruited me more seriously and they, they showed more more interest so it just that, that's you how always i went want there.
1: to go someplace where they want you I you guess. want to feel the love you yeah, know <laughs> exactly. cool um so i think it was your freshman year that was when nine eleven happened yeah so what kind of thoughts and feelings and emotions were kind of going on like were you like oh shit or were you like uh you let's, know, let's let's do this thing. Or
0: I think that it, as a freshman in college, I, I knew I still had four years. Um, it's not like they were just going to graduate everybody early and, and send them to right. the, the front line, but still, it was you know raising your right hand and taking the oath as a fresh as a plebe at West Point pre-war, and then being there in the fall and watching everything happen. You know, I knew it was kind of a, a, not a special time, but an important time in our history, where it's something that you know I lived through it, and I was kind of at a very symbolic place when everything happened. I remember that Tuesday morning, I was walking to my second hour class, and at every classroom at West Point there's a TV, and usually teachers have like the news playing in between the, the class change, and I was walking into the class, and one of my other friends that I played lacrosse with, who's also from Long Island, we were watching this happen, and you know, for two guys from New York, I. I said this uh, the other week at the U.S. lacrosse um, uh, headquarters. They had a 9-11 memorial opening, and they asked me to come and speak. And I, I said this, too, where when your home country is attacked, it, it stings. But when it's your home it hurts a little more. I feel like yeah, and, when you're and, closer to exactly. The city, you know, yeah. to I, I knew two guys that it's not like I was best friends with them, but I looked up to them when when I was a little kid. You know, one I played, ho- you know, I knew him from the hockey rink and I watched him play. The other guy I, I was a lacrosse player. One was a firefighter. The other guy was um uh, was a Cantor Fitzgerald was the name of the office that pretty much got demolished. Um, he, he was a Cantor guy um you know both died in the tower so I, I knew people my dad worked uh in a, in a federal office building right around the street so i remember that morning trying to get in touch with my dad and i couldn't you know nobody knew where he was because everybody was doing that mass exodus from downtown uh off of manhattan so
1: scary stuff yeah, yeah
0: you know it was crazy and to 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 be so close to it um it, i knew that going to west point it, it all kind of made sense at that time because I, if someone's going to go you know, not I don't want to say revenge, but but kind of do the job of, of finding those people that attacked us. I knew I was set up to go do that, and I, I wanted to go do that. So,
1: awesome. So, can you talk a little bit about that oath that you're talking about that uh, everyone, at, I guess, all the cadets at at west point yeah so you know
0: take, all the cadets at west point and, and air force and navy and all the other service academies and it's the same oath that uh that kids take when they enlist in the army and that's just that you you swear that you'll uh defend and uphold the constitution and uh it, you know it's a i probably can't recite it right now and i'm doing a horrible job but it was so long ago but uh it it's kind of powerful though you know knowing that you're about to get involved with something a lot bigger than just yourself, and you're going to be part of this kind of big green machine that that, uh, that defends America.
1: Right, cool. Um, all right, so let's talk about your, uh, your lacrosse career at West Point. And I know at one point you, you won the – I'm going to butcher this name – the Steve – Fla- Flahakis. Flahakis. Yeah. Okay. Unsung Hero <laughs> Award. So I was looking up – I was trying to find something about, like, the meaning behind the award yeah. and, like, what it was all about. But I couldn't really find much. So can you kind of explain what the award is and why it means so much to you to uh, earn that? Yeah. So
0: I think I was the, the second recipient of that award. I think uh, our t- the Army started that in 2004, I believe. And, you know, basically it is what it, soo- it, it sounds like. It's the Unsung Hero Award, and I won that my senior year. So a little backstory in that, which will probably help explain that. Uh, in high school, I was, a, you know, all-state attackman, and you know, I scored goals and I never crossed the midfield and I loved it. And I get to college and I was fast. So my freshman and sophomore year, I get made a midfielder. And all right, whatever. I just want to touch the field and play. And the beginning of my junior year, the coaches asked me to switch from, you know, midfield to defensive midi, where playing defense and just helping with transition and obviously no I can't, glory exactly yeah. you know i you know i still have the green light to go to goal if there's if there's daylight and, and take it to the the net but you know transition and, and defense and i told him yeah i'll do whatever it takes for us to to win and, and i just want to play and that's what i'm here for so you know that's kind of how i ended up winning that award i think my senior year where I, I i wasn't a captain but i was definitely a leader on the field and uh you know I sold out every day at practice and for every game and, you know, even my last game I remember versus Georgetown, uh, I was I was pretty emotionally upset, you know, physically and emotionally, you know, I tears coming down my face because I knew that was the last time I would ever touch the field as a college athlete and, you know, it's kind of my identity at the time where that's who I was. I was a lacrosse player and I knew, you know, I wasn't like horribly distraught. I knew I was going on to bigger and better things, but still that – you know, high school and college across was such a, a big part of my life.
1: Right. So, what was the biggest obstacle transitioning? What, from from to midfield, was it the you know an unglorified position, or were, were you ever like you know why the hell did they do that? Or why? no,
0: I, the biggest challenge probably was working on my stamina because it was just constantly running. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I you know I, I was always an athlete, and I, I, I'm my premise is I think kids should play growing up. All sports, You know, I don't think that kids should focus on one sport at like at six and think that they're going to be the next Tiger Woods or the next, um, you know, Phil Sim, you know, as a, as a quarterback. I think they should play all sports because I think it transitions later on in life. And because I, I was a good all-around athlete, going from offense to defense wasn't that hard of a challenge. You Interesting, know, pl- yeah. Playing defensive midfield, it's like playing basketball where you want to push them down the side. You don't want to let them get to their strong hand. And as long as you can run, you know, north, south, and east, west, and, and dodge, and, and give a juke, and a couple of moves, and have good hand-eye coordination, you know, you'll be fine.
1: Right. Um, did, that, did that experience kind of help you out at any point in, in, down in your Army career? Um, like, yeah. in terms of, like, having your position change, or your role change, or something like that, and yeah. having to adjust?
0: I mean, that's pretty much a day-to-day in Special Forces, where you're living in, in the gray, and there's a lot of ambiguity, and... There's there's not a lot of black and white, and you kind of have to make decisions on the fly, and you have to be adaptive. You have to be able to you know react and think on your feet, and I think a lot of that there there is a lot of comparisons to that, especially you know as a defensive midfielder player in lacrosse. There's there's a lot of that I think uh, in the special operations community in general.
1: All right, cool. Um, What what did you why did you choose the number thirty seven?
0: I picked 37 in high school. That was my my number when I started playing varsity lacrosse my sophomore year of high school. And so, growing up on Long Island, I used to go to a lot of Hofstra lacrosse games. And uh, the big star at the time, I remember as a young attackman, was this guy Chris Panos who he wore number 42. And I was like, oh, that, you know, that's cool. You know, that's a big number. Usually, guys, almost like Gretzky wears ninety-nine, right, you know, okay. like th- that type deal. So I asked for forty-two, and they said the highest number they had was thirty-seven. So I was like, all right, yeah, I'll take, take thirty-seven. And uh, I've just stuck with it since, and it's always been kind of my my number, my calling like uh, calling card. And you know, as an athlete, that's always kind of like your thing is your number. Right. And, you know, all all athletes are superstitious in a way. So
1: yeah, I'm with you. And. Everyone thinks it's weird that, like, they think, like, 37 is, like, a odd number to choose. I don't know. But you know, I think it's cool because it's odd. Exactly. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, I'm, I, you know,
0: watching movies and just hearing stuff, I'm, I'm a big observer of things. I see 37, like, in daily things a lot. Time, you know, yeah. like, it will always pop up in, like, movies, like, oh, here's your change, 37 so, cents. Yeah. You know, just stuff like that. Yeah.
1: I think it's the, the same thing. Sometimes I'm just, like, am I hyper-aware of yeah. it? Or <laughs> is it, like, actually <laughs> happening? <laughs> All right. Cool. So, um, so... What made you want to become a Green Beret and go into infantry? Um, so when I, I graduated from
0: West Point um, and, and you're commissioned, you, you can't go into special forces until you're at least a, a captain promotable. Um, so you're a first lieutenant. So they want you to have some exper- life experience and time in the Army. So you can't just do special operations straight out of the academy. So when I graduated, I, I was a second lieutenant in the infantry. Um, I went to ranger school and airborne school and did all that, and uh, I did a, a deployment as an infantry platoon leader in Iraq from 2000, 2006 to 2007 uh, for 15 months straight. It was during the surge, and uh, we were extended. So while I was there, um, I always kind of had an inkling about doing special forces, you know, it's it's the it, it's the special guys and they're they're doing cool things and but I, I never really got to, to see them or talk to them and while I was in Iraq I got to work with uh, a couple different ODAs with special forces team is called Operation Operational Detachment Alpha so ODA. So since I was able to be attached to a couple ODAs and, and wor- work with the guys and talk to the guys and and not just see like, oh, you know, what you guys do in the movies are cool, but more like the real life of what they do. And, you know, yes, you get to fly around in helicopters at night and, and go after bad guys and, and do that type of stuff, but there's more to it, and it's more of a thinking man's game, and, you know, it's uh – What's his name? I can't, oh my god, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, General Donovan, who's the the founder of the OSS uh, in World War II, which is a precursor to special forces in okay. uh, the CIA. And he said, uh, "I want to find a Princeton graduate that can win a bar fight." And that's that's what SF guys are. It's it's thinkers. They're they're more the chess masters instead of like the checker masters, okay. where there's a lot of different things that you can do. How do you want to leverage things? How do you want to leverage people? And uh, I thought that was, like, you know, really cool. These guys, you know, they're physical studs, but they're also, like, really smart. A lot of them have master's degrees, and and they can talk about anything, and everyone knows a second language, and um, it it just really appealed to me, all of
1: it. It's cool. Um, It's almost like trying to be, I don't know, a captain in a sport or, I don't know. It's like striving to be that, like, extra, you know, above and beyond. Um, All right, so what was the, like, toughest part about, the training aspect of becoming a green beret.
0: Um, so the I, there's a couple of portions of the the pipeline the special forces uh, qualification course and the first part is special forces assessment and selection. And before I went through it was usually 21 days and um they when I when I went they cut it down because they were trying to get more guys I think through through the pipeline and, and produce more green berets. Um, at the time, just because both both theaters were really kicking off between Iraq and Afghanistan, so they moved selection from 21 days to 14, and they also were doing it during the summer. So normally they didn't do it during I think it was July and August down at Bragg, just because it was so so hot. Um, so they didn't want to hurt anybody. So when I went through, it was July or I forget if I went in for July or August, but it was one of the summer classes, and it was 14 days. And they try to reverse cycle it. So they did everything at night to keep it cool, um, which I think briefs very well. But in reality, I think it sucked like even more because your sleep cycle is already effed up because you're now doing everything at night. During the day when they let you sleep for a couple hours, you're in these giant tents. That are just like ovens because there's no ventilation. So you're, you know, you wake up and you're super dehydrated, and then you got to go walk 16 miles with 80 pounds on your back already. That sounds horrible. So I think selection was uh, the 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 first kind of slap in the face and punch to the gut when it came uh, through training. But the, the Q course is so long. There's so many different individual gates that you have to pass. Um, it was just a, the the whole thing overall was definitely. Uh, a big mental and physical gut check, um, you know, and, and guys that, that make it through that you, you really do earn that Green Beret and that, that long tab.
1: So, I mean, that that must have felt great, but what did it feel like when you were named, you know, a captain of uh, a Green Beret captain? Well,
0: so I was a captain going through it. Oh, that's how it works. Yeah. Okay. So that's how you know the the promotions go. So it wasn't that I, you graduated the course and congratulations, you're a captain. When I right. graduated, I was a captain. But you know, a, a, along the same line, I think we were talking about to be a green beret detachment commander. It is kind of humbling because you get to a team, you're the fucking new guy. You're also probably you know four years younger than most guys on the team, and they've all had special operations deployments before. Um, you know, I think that my class graduating in the Q course was a little lucky when it comes to combat experience because we all served in Iraq during the surge as as, inf- as infantry guys. So a lot of day-to-day, you know, fighting, and, and we were already familiar with, with, with uh, infantry tactics and combat, and we've kind of – most of us had experienced it before where I think a lot of guys now going through the Q course may not have – probably don't have that same – you know, ground combat experience when they get to a team and then, you know, now you're on a team with a bunch of SF guys that have, you know, multiple trips, Afghanistan doing actual combat operations. So, um, it, it still was intimidating getting to a team and I, I, I knew my place, you know. I, I wasn't going to come in there and be like, "All right, motherfuckers, I'm the captain." Yeah. By the way, I went to West Point, you know, yeah. and, and pull that card. I never, you know, I, I is didn't that say,
1: like a stigma? Is does West Point like a stigma? Obviously, yeah. yeah. It,
0: it kind of is like the, almost like this this uh, snobby like stigma, I guess. But. Um, which is I think it's funny because a lot of people I meet that have never worked with a West Pointer, they think that, and then you know they work with me or, or another or one of my friends, and they're like, Oh no, you guys are pretty smart common sense guys I wasn't expecting that from you you know like we're gonna get them lost in the woods or something like that <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> all right, cool, so when I think about war and fighting and shooting guns, like it scares the crap out of me, so like what strategies do they teach you or what strategies did you kind of learn on your own in order to kind of <laughs> overcome that fear
0: you know i think just like in sports it's practice and repetition and muscle memory and i remember the first time that i had bullets you know shot at me in anger in iraq and, and i hear them zip him over my head it was just natural instinct to you know three to five second buddy rush to, to drop to the ground see and assess what was going on, move to a and conceal position. Cause I was kind of out in the open at the time and I, I you know, survival instincts kind of kicked in, but it was that muscle memory of, of things that you're taught in, in training during the, you know, infantry course during ranger school. It's just beat into you over and over again. That, uh, when the sound of the gun goes off, you drop and assess the situation and judge the distance and direction and, and make a decision of what you're gonna do? Or are you going to, you know move guys over here? Are you gonna where's your support by fire gonna be laid down? Um, so I think it's just like sports uh, when, it, when it comes to that,
1: I still think, are you still scared when when it first happens?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're still, it's still an adrenaline rush and it's almost like tunnel vision. Um, You know, it's a lot different when it's training and like simulators and you're like, oh, okay, there's two guys over there. We're going to walk 100 meters. They're going to shoot at us. We're going to get down. When you really don't know. Someone's going to yell 12 o'clock, 200 meters. Like it's it, but to walk into a village and to hear in three different locations, like AK is getting shot at you and you have to drop and reassess what's going on. And, you know, as a leader, you're responsible for this infantry platoon so you have guys on the ground you have vehicles you're responsible for you need to make decisions like within the next five seconds so it's uh i will say though once again like sports once you do it a couple times in real life, it becomes a lot easier. You kind of learn little tricks to it, you, you know, um, almost like have set plays ready uh, with other guys on your team of, you know, of hey, if we take contact over here or, you know, and this is all kind of the the planning process overall before you go out, you know, you leave the wire with uh, contingencies and, and wargaming everything, um, you know, you, you have something in place.
1: Interesting. Um, all right, so can you take us through the moments that you kind of – that led you up to stepping on the the IED. Uh, I like your water bottle, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thirty-seven. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, so
0: actually, so real quick, funny story. Um, if Coach Al- I'll have to tell Coach Alberici to listen into this. My lacrosse, the, the lacrosse coach up at Army. Uh, I called him because I, I played lacrosse for the first time after after getting injured and, and playing on prosthetic legs this past spring in a, a tournament called Shootout for Soldiers down in Baltimore. And I, I read about that. Yeah, yeah, I played goalie. So uh, the guys at Towson gave me some equipment. And I was like, you know what'd be cool if I could get an A and a thirty seven for, you know, when I played and put it on my helmet. And uh, I told Coach Alberici, and he's like, yeah, no, Ben, I'd love to help you out. I'll send it to you. And then, like, sure as shit, it comes, like, three weeks after the tournament. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, ah, thanks, Coach. So anyway, I threw it on my Nalgene bottle, and I get more use out of it now. than yeah, if you can see it every day. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. That's cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so 15 May 2012, um, I was walking through a doorway and uh, stepped on a, a pressure plate device. This is in Afghanistan? Yeah, it was during my second deployment to Afghanistan. And uh, it took off... Uh, my right leg and then my left leg was so badly broken that they had to amputate that too. And, uh, you know, I remember, I remember flying through the air and feeling concussed and it just, you know, we're talking about concussions before and that feeling of kind of like contact and, and almost hearing that like kind of crunch. Yeah. It just felt like that times a thousand. And, you know, I I had no clue. I stepped on an IED. I thought maybe a mortar had landed next to me. I thought, uh, you know, I even thought like a vehicle had like crept up behind me and hit me. Like I had no idea, but I remember going flying and, and just feeling uh, that that contact, and then um, like sensing and smelling that that explosion smell, and uh, kind of coming in and out. I remember uh, just dirt and dust kind of settling all around me. My head was just ringing like never before. Both my eardrums got blown out. Um, Do you have a
1: hard time hearing now, or? You know, so my right one
0: healed on its own. My left one, there was still a little perforation, so they did surgery and and paved over it, and uh, it's fine. I I have tinnitus anyway, but I was probably going to have that from from just (laughs) years of shooting Shooting and and bombs, you know, and, and too many booms. Um, so yeah, so I remember, uh, kind of being in and out. I remember hearing somebody screaming, uh, next to me and I I remember thinking, well, when they hear him, like someone's going to come and find me too. So like, all I got to do is just stay with it. Like just stay conscious. And, uh, it turns out it was actually me screaming. It was, I guess I want to call it out of body without getting like in a religious mode, you know what I mean? Like it, it just didn't feel like me. I, I don't remember screaming. I remember hearing somebody else yelling. And then uh, I remember just thinking, like, stay with it, stay with it. And I just, I felt like I was kind of slipping away. And I remember kind of in a a moment of clarity thinking uh, about, uh, there was a picture that I had of my wife, Gina, and my son, Peyton. And I just, like, it popped in my head. And it was, like, my focus. And it kind of, like, brought me back to a little bit. And I remember just saying their names over and over again, Peyton and Gina, Peyton and Gina. And to kinda,
1: kept, he kept you there.
0: Yeah, to, to, to kind of keep me with it. And uh, then I remember someone like kind of hovering over me and hearing him yell like, holy shit, holy shit. And uh, that's what I, I couldn't see him, but I, I felt everything. And I, I was like, all right, like I can kind of like let go. And, you know, staying conscious like that, I always say it's it's like. It felt almost like if you ever go into water and hold your breath mm-hmm. and then you're like, all right, I got to like – I, I got to pop up and take a breath. Um, it feels like the exact opposite where it just felt like, all right, I, like I just – I got to let go. Like I, I got to shut my eyes now. And I remember saying out loud, sorry, Gina, my wife's name. And and that was it, like blackness. And uh, I woke up three days later in uh, in Germany.
1: So what happened then when you got in Germany? So. Yeah,
0: in Germany I woke up um, like – so. When I got medevac to the trauma center, um, they said I was responsive. I don't remember anything. Um, I got intubated and sedated right away. Uh, They ended up pumping 75 units of blood back into me. Is Uh, that
1: like a record too?
0: No, I mean, I know of <laughs> other guys that got like a hundred, but, um, you know, just from the the trauma and obviously the legs and, um, so much, I lost so much blood. They, so they stopped even caring if it was my blood type. It's called battle buddy blood. So they just kind of tapped anybody in the, in the trauma center and did a direct, uh, transfusion. So, and you know, three months, every, in three month intervals after that, I had to get tested for like blood diseases and stuff just because they, you know, they wanted to keep yeah, they didn't test it, yeah. yeah. So, um, so they, they intubate and sedate me, amputate me right there, and kind of close me up and stabilize me. And uh, I, get sent, I get flown from Kandahar to Bath to, to Bagram Airfield, um, and then they flew me from Bagram to Germany. And when I woke up in Germany, it was three days after the uh, after the accident, stepping on the bomb. And I remember they said that they, they were trying to wake me because they wanted me to be conscious at least before the, the, the flight back to the States um but i i had a really bad fever any any reason or i think just they want me breathing on my own they do not want me on a respirator while i was on the flight cuz god forbid if anything happens oh, i, I right. guess i guess you know probability wise of something bad happening on a respirator compared to you breathing on your own and then uh, i had a really bad fever i had a at one point i had a fever of 106 while I was unconscious cuz Uh, My body was fighting off the different fungal and bacterial infections from the the dirt blown up into me in the blast too. So I guess they tried waking me up a couple times, but I was very aggressive in fighting them. And the third time, kind of like the last time that they were going to try and wake me up and uh, take me off the the respirator and everything – I just kind of came to, and I don't remember. It, it felt like all my five senses had been reset. I had no clue where I was. All I knew was that I was extremely thirsty because even while I was sedated, it was like a dream state where I couldn't wake myself up, and I was really starting to flip out about um, you know, wh- what had happened, where I am. I remember screaming in my head, like, please, God, let me wake up. I, I like, Please let me get something to drink. I was just dying of thirst. And um, I wake up, and the, I can't see anything, but I feel a nurse next to me and, you know tubes coming out of me my hands are all broken everything's kind of you know bandaged up and uh, the nurse says you know Captain Harrow, do you know where you are and I, I said no and she said uh, you're in Launchville, Germany so right away I, I realized that everything I was kind of like figuring out something bad had happened and she said do you, do you know what happened and I said no she said'm uh, you stepped in an IED so I asked you know did I um, did I lose a leg thinking I probably just lost like My my ankle, like up to my ankle or something like that. And she's like, I'm sorry, but you lost both your legs uh, above the knee. So I was quiet for a second. I go, okay. Do I still have my dick? And she's like, "Yes, you still have your penis." And I was like, "All right, you know, okay. Like, what? Do I have my arms? Like, I'm starting to go down. I can't see anything." Yeah, so I'm like, "She's like, yeah, you know, you have both your arms. Um, You know, I'm sorry, but you lost two fingers on your right hand, and um, you also suffered significant soft tissue damage on your on your forearm. But the doctors are going to be able to save your arm." And I was like, "All right, you know, half fingers, but I still got my dick, right?" And and, like (laughs) double checking, and she's like, "Yes, you still have that." And I was like, "All right." And then uh, I I passed back out. And then really that's the only conversation I remember in Germany. Um, I do remember at the time I I still had my, like, Afghan beard. And my wife Gina always hated, uh, like, when before deployment you had to grow it out. And she hated how scratchy and scruffy my beard would get.
1: Why did you have to grow a beard?
0: Uh, So with our mission, you're living amongst the populace. So to keep low visibility – and to, to fit in with a population, and it's a cultural thing over there, too, where all the men have beards.
1: Okay.
0: Um, you, all the special forces guys grow beards and, and wear beards. Okay. Um, so I remember asking them to shave me, uh, and I remember, like, some nurse or whoever was, like, shaving me just because I thought if Gina's going to see me, like, all fucked up with that leg, at, at least she won't <laughs> see me with a beard. So those are really the only, like, two significant things I remember in Germany. Um, did, ca- you, did you think about what she was
1: thinking? or?
0: No, you know, I was so doped up at the time, and it was still kind of like this crazy, nightmarish dream state of, like, figuring out, like, coming in and out of it, waking up and, like, remembering, uh, like, what just happened and then being in pain. And I just remember being super thirsty from all the narcotics they were giving me at the time, and just, like, I was throwing up. Like, they'd give me water. I'd throw up the water because I didn't have anything in my – you know, you drink a lot of water and not eat. And it was just kind of a vicious cycle. Um, Yeah, so it was – Kind of crazy.
1: So fast forward, I guess, you're back in the United States, and you had to start your rehab process again. I'm sure you're still in a ton of pain. You're on a lot of pain medicine. So like, what was your first kind of like thoughts and feelings and emotions when you started that rehab process? And I know uh, I read that you went cold turkey off the pain meds. Can can you kind of take us through that process?
0: So they told my wife I was supposed to do like four to six months inpatient. Uh, That's kind of like the usual – schematics when it guys with these injuries uh, get sent to Walter Reed, and I, I actually ended up only spending about a little under two months inpatient, uh, and part of that, I think, is because I took myself voluntarily off all my pain meds, um, you know, week three or four after they they were able to f- stop all the, the infections and really close me up and let me heal, um, I was on... I was on ketamine, I was on two types of Oxy, I was on a morph, like there was a morphine paddle hooked up to me um, to wean me off the ketamine, they put me on uh, methadone, you know, which they give to heroin addicts to wean them off heroin. So kind of in a a moment of clarity, in between all the drugs, I just, I knew I wanted to, I I didn't feel like myself. And I just wanted to to feel like myself, and and deal with this clear headed, then all foggy, because I, I, you know, on pain meds, Especially with ketamine, it's such a strong disassociate. I knew I was in pain, but I didn't really know. You know, I didn't know where I was. At one point, I remember somebody, tell, Gina, told me. I told one of my friends I was Batman. Um, I was calling in airstrikes, uh, <laughs> like on payment. It was crazy. So, on week like three or four, I just I stopped taking. You know, I stopped touching the morphine paddle. Um, the nurse would come in with like my my hourly, or you know, every eight hours, she'd come in with uh, oxy. And I said, Nah, I'm alright. I don't need it. And uh, after the first 24 hours, the doctors came in. They said, You know, Captain Harrow, you you feeling alright? And I was like, Nah. Look, I'm still in pain. Um, they're like, Yeah. How come you're not taking your pain meds? I was like, Look, I don't want to take any more pain meds. So I was like, You could unhook the morphine right now. I'm fine. I'll, I'll deal with it myself. And they're like, Look, don't be the overly macho Green Beret. If you need it, take it. And I was like, Look, I, I get it. I understand why there's pain management. You know, lower the heart rate to help healing. But I, I want to kind of get ahead of the game, and I want to stop pumping poison in my body. Like, I, I just don't feel right. And, uh, like, look, you can we can't make you take the pain meds, but at least let's leave you hooked up to the morphine for the next couple of days. So I was like, all right. And uh, so the next couple of days, you know, I refused all my narcotics, um, didn't touch the morphine paddle, but it was just crazy pain where I would just have these, like, kind of shooting bursts of uh, almost feel like fire. And my my legs, you know, being kind of almost grabbed by, like, hot metal hands and just crushed. And really what it is is my my brain freaking out where it's sending a signal down to where my legs are supposed to be, not getting that return signal. And in in turn, it just feels like pain because it's my my nervous system freaking out. And, uh, you know, at night, my wife Gina, she spent every night uh, in in the hospital room with me. She would spend, like, late at night when it was really bad, she'd tap the end of my stumps to try and confuse my brain to focus on the tapping sensation instead of like figuring out where my feet were. Um, or she like rubbed my head or just trying to like keep me occupied some other way, to, like talking to me. And after, honestly, after those couple of days of just really sucking through the pain, I was able to kind of break through a plateau and uh, I didn't need the pain meds any, anymore. I was just like, all right, um, I feel fine.
1: Right. And then did like your brain kind of figure out that?
0: Yeah, it was just, it your, just, the rest of your legs it, weren't there anymore. It, it, like, yeah, it just, Calm down. It was just like, all right, this is this is new normal. Right. These are the new signals, and uh, so yeah, I think that helped me with the recovery and and get me you know back to, you know starting where I needed to be. Uh, you know, when I got injured, I was I would say I was a I was a 215 pound tactical athlete. You know, you're not doing too much cardio in Afghanistan unless you're like running around on the objective. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so I was a lot a lot more weight room stuff, and uh, when I left. Inpatient. I was about 135 pounds, like soaking wet, and it was just when I say starting from scratch, I hadn't been 135 pounds since sophomore year of high school. Plus, my right arm was so banged up that I had no range of motion Perfect. in it. You know, I still had kind of pins in my hands because both my hands got broken from the blast. Um, just really banged up. So it was it wasn't starting from zero. We're starting from like negative 100.
1: Right. I mean, I feel like I've been there, too. After my injury, I lost a ton of weight, too. Um, and it, it's a, a dark point in time. Yeah. So what was, like, your lowest moment, and how did you kind of get get through that during the, the recovery process?
0: You know, I think that my training as a, as a Green Beret and even my time as a, a college athlete and a high school just an athlete overall, you know, having to deal with tough times um and kind of deal with the suck that's just something you know as a profession that's something that they look for during selection that you know are you cold and tired and hungry but will you continue to keep putting left foot in front of right foot and and driving on and even though you know I didn't have left foot and right foot anymore I knew that my new job was to to rehab and to get better and you know I had a son and a wife and I needed to, to to figure out new normal and it it sucked and i it just it was like anything else i did as an sf guy i just kind of put my head down and took a deep breath and 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 carried on you know whatever it was um a lot of adapting to new things obviously you know cardio wise i wasn't running around the first couple of months i was in like this doctor evil electric wheelchair and that was horrible you know to be you know almost I, I I guess I'm kind of ashamed to say it, but the ego part of it of you know being this badass walking around. and now I'm like, you know, this this broken torso in an electric wheelchair um it does it's tough on the psyche i guess but for sure i mean i just knew i knew my goal i knew what i had to do to get there and uh I, nothing was was stopping me and it was the same thing with the the, the limb lengthening I, I don't know if you were going to ask yeah, about I that, too. Ask you that next yeah. yeah so you want me to jump into that go for yeah, it yeah so you know i i got injured in may of 2012 um that summer, I got out and and during, during the beginning of the fall, I started to work out again. I was you know getting back in shape. I even you know went out and, and played sled hockey for the first time and tried that and just figuring out what new normal would be and. Uh, At the same time, I really wasn't having having any success when it came to prosthetics, and I really wanted to be up and walking again, even if it was, you know, like slow and and, and I know I'm not going to be running around, but at least to be wearing them, you know, in the house or just, you know, small stuff. I I get it, but nothing would stay on my right leg because so much of my right leg got taken off in the blast and and cut away just because the infection kept working its way at my femur. I was so short that I couldn't wear, you know, these these full size prosthetics I'm wearing now, and uh, I even had to wear this kind of cumbersome belt that was like super uncomfortable
1: to like keep them on to, or... just to,
0: just to keep the suction on. So how how my uh, system works is it's a, a vacuum seal where underneath my uh, my socket is a liner. And there's a ring around it. And then as I put on my socket, I push this uh, white valve. I know we're doing a podcast and they can't see, but I'm, I'm trying to do the best here. I'll take a
1: picture later. Or okay. Something,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you push this white release button and, and it, it, it pushes out all the air. So that's how it stays on is a vacuum seal. Okay. Um, and so there wasn't even enough leverage on my right side to, to hold it. Um, so it was just very frustrating. And I remember being down in uh, Florida. I was at my in-laws for Thanksgiving uh, in 2012. We went down there, and um, I brought my little legs. I was, wa- you know, trying to walk around on it and work on my core strength and stability, and. Uh, I was just getting super frustrated and, and talking to my wife about it, and and she suggested me, you know, maybe there's can't they just grow uh, like your leg like a little bit? And I was like, Gina, I was like, if they if they could do that, I'm sure they would have done that. Right. And uh, you know, with her kind of like impetus, I I started doing my own research and reading like amputee forums and stuff on orthopedic surgery and limb lengthening and if that's even a thing. And uh, I discovered a process called osteodistraction where women in Russia and China pay to, pay to get their shin bones broken, and then they stretch out the break and gain a couple of inches of height, so that way they can be taller to be models. And I was like, wow, if they can do that to a, a tip and a fib, why not a femur? So I took that idea back to the doctors at Walter Reed, and I was like, hey, do you guys know about this process? Do you do it? And uh, they said, you know, we've never done a, a stump lengthening like that. We uh, you know we know about the process, and we use it to correct major traumatic breaks and uh, like compound fractures. Um, uh, but they got me in touch with a doctor at Johns Hopkins. So I, we go up and meet the guy at Johns Hopkins. He's the American guru of uh, external fixators and, and limb lengthening. And he tells me, Yeah, I can definitely get you like two to three inches of bone. I've done an amputee before. Um, he's had great, you know, pretty good results. Um, but just to give you a heads up you're going to be on antibiotics the entire time because you're going to have metal half in you, half out. And, you know, you're, you can't get, you're going to be kind of down for eight months. And for me, that was just like, Kind of heartbreaking because you I, make progress. Exactly, and it's like you got to go back. I, I, it's like going through ranger school and then getting day, and like volunteering to day one yourself through ranger school. And I was like, "Look, I'll I'll do it." But is there anything else you know out there? Like I'm, you know, just asking. He's like, "Well, there's this guy I know up in Minnesota that uses this non-FDA approved device, and it's all internal. And that way, you know, you don't have to worry about the as much as the infection part. And you're probably, you know, you can't be doing a lot, but you can do some stuff." And I was like, all right, like, please get me in touch with them. So a couple weeks later, I get a phone call from Dr. Dahl, the doc up in Minnesota, and uh, introduces himself. And he says, Ben, you know, I saw your x-rays. I can, uh, looking at the x-rays, you know, I could probably get you about two inches of length. Um, I got to see you firsthand to really judge, like, how much soft tissue. So we scheduled a time for me to come up there and we'll do the surgery and um, went up there. Um, uh, That was July 29th, 2013, I believe. Um, went up to Minnesota, did the surgery, and how it works is uh, they, they drill a cavity into the end of your femur, they break your femur, and then in that cavity that they just created, they, they insert a device that looks like two AA batteries stacked on top of one another, and then on either side of the break, uh, they they screw that the device attach it to your femur on the inside, and then through my hip was a wire connected to a radio receiver that was about the size of a quarter buried underneath my skin. So all internal. So four times a day I took a radio transmitter, uh, stuck it over the receiver on my hip, uh, flipped on the, the this like shoebox size uh, radio transmitter device and I wore a stethoscope and I listened to all the screws turn, counted the screws um, every time I turned it on and make sure we were lengthening at the right you know, uh, rate and did that for about 11 months. Uh, one minor setback, two, two or three surgery, uh, three surgeries total. I ended up setting two medical world records. One for the shortest uh, femur ever lengthened, and the other was for the most most bone regenerated. So instead of regrowing two to three inches, I ended up growing six and a half inches of leg back. And it's great that I got myself up and walking. But now it's an actual process that they do for guys at Walter Reed where they don't have to figure it out on their own. You know, I was well, patient zero. Precedence. Exactly, yeah. I, I was patient zero. I made myself patient zero. So there's actually two guys on my sled hockey team that uh, same deal. They're you know one side was shorter than the other, so they went through the lengthening process, and they're both up and walking now too.
1: Awesome, that's crazy. And I'm sure that had to that had to have hurt a ton doing it, or did it not really? You know, everyone asks me that. It's kind of uh, it sounds act, act, horrible. Act, it <laughs> does sound horrible, <laughs> but to be honest,
0: um, it I guess it's all relative once you get your legs blown off because yeah. I, it's all
1: about your frame of reference. Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I had a broken femur for about eleven months, and we we're we were lengthening the break. It honestly, it got it a little. It was bad. like a little achy, but it really wasn't that bad. Yeah. All right. So I don't. I don't wish it upon anyone, but it still. It wasn't that bad. So athletes out there who, <laughs> who
1: get hurt. Yeah. It makes everything else easier going forward. Um. All right. So you want to talk about. Playing sled hockey and what that's kind of done for you, I'm sure, because you go from being an athlete at West Point, being a Green Beret, running around, and I know we talked about this when we first met in the the hotel lobby about your workout and stuff, and, like, how do you, you know, get your heart rate up? I know I I hurt my knee, like, in January or whatever, I had knee surgery, Yeah, even that, like, it's hard to sweat it's hard to like do that kind of yeah stuff, so. no
0: definitely so so first off um trying to figure out how to do you know just cardio again obviously a lot of hand cycle stuff um i bought a elevation training mask so now i look like one of those guys that you probably make fun of in the gym rolling around with an elevation it, training it helps to
1: get your heart rate up and yeah stuff it,
0: it definitely gets your heart rate up just because it, it it restricts your breathing so it, it is a lot tougher so i'll do different workouts with that just to change it up sometimes so i'll do you know just like 20 or 30 minutes with like just just straight push-ups and sit-ups like non-stop wearing that mask and it definitely gets your heart rate up um i'll swim uh hand cycle but definitely sled hockey is great uh for for cardio for me and and playing hockey you know so hockey was my first kind of first true love of sport and i grew up uh playing it you know that was like my first major sport uh when i was five i started skating and i started playing goalie when i was a little guy and i really liked it um but for a kid playing goalie at five every year the parents gotta buy him new leg pads and my parents were like look you're now a right winger. Like, we're not paying for leg pads every year. So uh, I stopped playing goalie. So to be able to do something that I loved growing up has been great for me physically and mentally. You know, I always say hockey's the one thing that I feel is the same uh, for me. With legs and without. You know, you walk into a hockey rink, every hockey rink smells like a hockey rink. Yeah. It's still five on five. It's still the same sheet of ice. The goal is still four by six. It's still the same rules. Obviously, it's a sled. And for me as a goalie, I'm not making kick save left and right. But it's already like I flopped and I'm just catcher, blocker, catcher, blocker. Um, and it, I still can be competitive and, and athletic. So... Um, it, it really does it really has helped me a lot in, in my recovery physically and mentally and uh, I still just enjoy it and uh, it's great and now you know my, my son just started playing hockey so I get to get out on the ice and uh, and help coach him and uh, I skate around in a sled with like all the little guys so it, it's great that's awesome yeah
1: um, yeah keeping yeah, keeping it going even you know no matter what it is you know if you can do something competitive still and still gets you excited and yeah you know I I kind of worry
0: what it's going to be next. I'll probably, my competitive, I'll probably be one of those parents where I'm, I'm living vicariously, unfortunately, through my, my, my son, my daughter does it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Why else have kids? I guess. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Carry on the tradition.
1: Yeah. All right. So we're going to start wrapping things up. Uh, where can people find you on social media or do you not want people to find you on social media?
0: No, definitely. Um, I do have a Facebook page. It's, uh, it's Conrad Harrow uh, on Facebook, but I, to be honest, I, I hardly ever go on Facebook. I'm more of an Instagram guy.
1: Love Instagram. My yeah. philosophy
0: is like, I, I, this way I don't have to thumb through like a thousand different like political views and like other things I'm not really interested in. But I can see, oh, there's my friend in, Pictures, yeah. yeah, there's my friend in, in Budapest. He's in Hungary. Oh, that's amazing. And then oh, that's my friend. Oh, their daughter is really growing up. Cool. Um, so I'm more of an Instagram guy. It's uh, B Harrow 37 on Instagram. Teresa. Yeah.
1: (laughs) All right. These are my, my final questions. Sure. So what would you say to a parent who uh, won't let their kids play sports such as football because it's too dangerous?
0: Um, you know, I think that
1: football, You, you have a son. So, yeah. You know what? So to be honest, I'll tell you,
0: I'll tell you honestly, I, I wouldn't want Peyton to play football until, and my dad was the same way, uh, until, I was older, you know. I, I wanted to play Pop Warner, and I thought that was so cool. I love, you know, eighty-five Bears was the first sports team I ever saw, and I was a huge Walter Payton fan. And uh, I, you know, I played two-hand touch football whenever I could. Um, my dad didn't want me to play contact sports until I could check in hockey, and I was kind of older, and you know, when I was like fourteen years old. But
1: he was ahead of the times.
0: Yeah, I know it's pretty impressive. Um, you know, I, I would be the same way with Payton, and and just teach him there's a proper way to hit. Uh, obviously the mouthpiece is a huge part of, of, avoiding concussions and making sure you're wearing a mouthpiece and heads up and it's debatable. But yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. You know, I would rather, to be honest, I would rather pay and play a contact sport, uh, like lacrosse or, or hockey where I feel like the contact is a little different. Yeah. You're probably going to, it's not
1: the point of the game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like,
0: you know, hit each other, get up, hit each other, get up, um, yeah. But, I mean, with that said, I am a huge – I do love watching football, and it, it is it, it is tougher. I do think, though, that you know nowadays there's so many concussion rules where it is a known thing. You know, a lot of guys in the NFL that are having issues because what they were doing 20 years ago, I don't think that 20 years from now you'll have the same issues because the NFL is so aware of it and, and the checks and balances that are kind of put in place.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, like, kids – or I call myself a kid. Yeah. Uh, I'm 26, so <laughs> I feel like when, when – people my age are starting to coach their kids, I feel like it'll start to change at that point in time because that was right around the time when people started talking about concussions and yeah. went away from, like, the, you know, got your bell rung, stuff, stuff like that. Yeah,
0: I mean, you watch games now, it, you watch a hard hit, and most of the time, I feel like you, you'll see a flag thrown on the play for, like, targeting or unsportsmanlike conduct yeah. or a high hit, and I think it's just kind of, it will eventually work its way out of the game where you'll, you won't see as many just crushing blows.
1: right. So, what's the most important lesson that you learned at West Point?
0: The most important lesson I learned at West Point would be that that hard work does pay off, and uh, you know I learned that. I that's a lesson that I learned. You know, if you're able to persevere, um, I remember the conditioning sessions uh, up at Mikey Stadium. You know, late in the evening and and, in during like January and February, it was dark out and cold and wet and snowing. And we'd see all the other cadets like coming back from dinner or coming back from like a long weekend, and we would be out on the field just doing sprints and conditioning drills. But that hard work paid off, where you know we were we we're a top ten team my junior year and, and senior year, and we were super competitive and uh, had had every opportunity to to try and win a national championship. And that's just a lesson that I took later on in life, you know, in in the military as an SF guy, and especially trying to figure out how to walk again and, and, and figure out how to how to get up on legs that it, it it takes hard work if it was easy everybody would be doing it
1: exactly uh what's the most important lesson that you learned uh, from being a green beret
0: adaptability where you could be walking to a room and think that you're meeting with somebody and it, it could be this kind of peaceful meeting and it can turn 180 degrees and turn into a gunfight just a, in a snap
1: you have an example of that
0: um
1: <laughs> 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 sounds like a cool story <laughs>
0: You know, I, I, there were actually several meetings and uh, meets that I had in, in Afghanistan where I thought it was actually going to turn into this, you know, Western-style shootout, and, and thank God it didn't, and cooler heads prevailed. Um, but uh, that feeling of flipping your weapon from safe to fire because you think you're about to put rounds into a guy that's, like, two feet from you, it's just – it is a little uh, unnerving. Um but to yeah. Say the least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I can imagine. Um, all right, so what are the most important lessons that you learned about yourself from your injury or injuries? I I learned that as mentally tough
0: as I I thought I was, and I, I thought I, I was a pretty mentally tough guy. It's I, I can go to another level, and that's something that honestly I wish I, I figured that out about myself as an athlete too. I, I uh, looking back, I I. I I think that there's a lot more I probably could have done, succeeded, you know, on the athletic field um, if maybe I was mentally stronger at the time. Um, you know, going through the Special Forces course and, and being an SF guy, you know, there's a lot of tough things that you got to do. And, and being able to push through that mentally, you know, you, I feel it's like you break through a plateau and you're like, oh, my God, this this is easy now. And uh, especially now being injured, you know, learning how to walk again, especially, on, a, you know, we were talking about I just changed up the knees I was walking on. And I was walking around pretty good for a year, changed them up, and it was just starting from scratch again. But I know in the end this is kind of these knees are, are what I need. Um, but it's just it's, it's a mental game, you know. It's just one foot in front of the other.
1: Awesome. Uh, what three things are you most grateful for?
0: Uh, Gina, Payton, and Marquesa.
1: Your kids and your wife. Yep. All right, perfect. And last question, what's your personal definition of perseverance?
0: my personal definition of perseverance is is going through hard times being able to put your head down and lower your shoulder and and just follow through and and know that you're going to come out on the other end on top
1: just like all your training and stuff you, like you said one foot one foot in front of the other
0: yeah you know it's- honestly i say i i do know i say that a lot that was actually one of the best pieces of advice I got, uh, before I started ranger school you know, as a young second infantry, second Lieutenant, you know, ranger school is like this big crucible. And, you know, if you don't have your ranger tab, that that's pretty much a career killer later on. And, uh, it's uh, just a huge, it's just a huge suck fest. It's uh, 72 days and uh, three phases and just and tough and, you know, lack of sleep, lack of food, constant operations. Um, you know, I ended up losing about 30 pounds during the entire thing. Um, and I remember talking to another West Point guy that that was uh, graduated from the academy two a year or two ahead of me, but he I, I knew him just through the athletic program, and he said, "Hey, it's just one foot in front of the other. Just remember that." And you know, so many times I remember walking around with a like 90 pound ruck on my back through uh, Dahlonega, Georgia, uh, up in the mountains of Georgia, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, just so tired and so cold. And just thinking, like, all I got to do is just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You know, eventually, like, this we will be able to go to sleep. But just for right now, just keep putting one foot in front of the other.
1: Awesome. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to do the interview. Yeah, thanks for... And uh, your story's awesome. And I feel like we were best friends from the, the, the moment I met you. Like, yeah. 37, I'm like, we, we have that connection.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, thanks so much for having me on the podcast and everything. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yep.